Today, I'm joined by doctoral candidate Daisy Hoagland from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. As an early career researcher in biomedical sciences at this interesting point in history, Daisy's work has been overtaken by COVID. Of her dozen or so papers so far, almost all of them have been on COVID. Her work has added to the flood of crucial data on the pandemic, including the development of antiviral compounds. But how has the redirection of resources affected her educational and career goals? And how many other doctoral and postdoctoral students have been affected in similar ways? Let's find out. Welcome, Daisy. Thank you so much for having me, Mary, um, and uh, to uh, the Eureka Sounds of Science podcast for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here today. We're really excited to have you. Thank you so much for coming. Um, so can you tell me first about what drew you to a career in science, obviously before the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it actually started uh, in high school. I went to a vocational school in New Jersey called Biotechnology High School. Um, and so it kind of, it's like a public vocational school and it kind of set me on uh, the STEM track. And mm -hmm. I ended up um, going to the University of Vermont um, and studying microbiology. Um, and there I realized quickly that I wanted to be involved in like actual uh, lab science. So I started doing a work study position and eventually um, doing research for credit um, in Dr. Yvonne Jansen-Heininger's lab um, where we studied allergic asthma models um, in mice um, and specifically uh, reprogramming of metabolism uh, in the context of asthma models. Um, and so I was really uh, interested in doing uh, wet lab research, but after I graduated, I actually really needed to convince myself that I wanted to to stay in science um, because I knew it takes like a lot to to be able to spend like at least a decade of your life at the bench um, while you're Absolutely. getting yeah all of these degrees. So I actually took a year and I did uh, AmeriCorps Vista, um, which is basically I volunteered um, at a STEM mentorship nonprofit um, in the the Bay Area of of uh, California. Um, oh, but basically. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then two weeks in, um, two weeks in, I, I learned a lot. Like I learned a lot of project management skills that I think are actually very useful for mm -hmm. um, like how I'm working now. Um, but um, two weeks in, I was like, oh my gosh, like somebody give me a pipette. Like I just felt <laughs> uh, totally out of my comfort zone. Like my, I, like I needed to be at the bench um, or mm -hmm. I, I knew that I wanted to do uh, wet lab science. Um, so then I just immediately started applying to PhD programs that year. Um, and then I, I got into to Mount Sinai and I moved to the city. So. Wow. That's uh, quite the crisscross of the country there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I definitely have a less um, specifically traditional path than a lot of doctoral students. I've always been on the STEM track, um, but I've also always been interested in a lot of other things as well. Um, but uh so because a lot of students, they they will do like go straight into a PhD program or they'll mm -hmm. spend a couple of years being a lab technician um, or a research assistant in, in a lab. Um, mm -hmm. But so I just did it a little bit differently. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's benefits to both of those trajectories. But uh, in my opinion, it's always good to get some real world world experience before you keep going um, with your education because it, it just makes it easier to figure out what exactly you want. 
Yes, absolutely. And I think that that having that experience like made me learn a lot of things about what like I yeah, I do and don't want in in a workplace and where I think that that my work can be the most uh impactful. Mm-hmm. And of course what you enjoy the most. Right. Yes, also that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, how has the pandemic affected your trajectory? So, mostly it's it's really just changed uh the specifics of of my research. But overall, I actually haven't been too affected, I think, except for just the acceleration of, mm-hmm. uh, of my trajectory. Um, when I, so as a member of the, the Tenuver Lab um, at um, the Icon School of Medicine, I was really studying um, like the antiviral innate immune response in general, mm-hmm. like just doing basic science research. And I was also doing a lot of... Um, uh, uh, mouse work using for a viral engineering project. Mm. And so basically when um, the pandemic happened, those were the two things that I was studying and very specifically it positioned me in a unique way to just transition all of the skills that I had learned doing on um, like in terms of understanding the antiviral immune response and being able to do small animal work. Um, I could use both of those to transition to understanding the host response to SARS-CoV-2 in a small animal model. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it really was a kind of chance that it just allowed me to to take those things that I'd already been studying and use them there. And then definitely the past year has just been really accelerated. (laughs) So just a lot of a few years just kind of smushed into one. but but my trajectory has has really stayed the same because I'm intending on um, on continuing in academia um, and after defending my thesis, I'm starting a, a postdoctoral position. So what was it like as a doctoral candidate at your level when the pandemic first started? It really felt like I was in a movie. Like it felt like I was in specific, yeah, specifically in the field of virology. Mm-hmm. I was a second year in the middle of the second year of my PhD. So essentially that just means that like the entire trajectory of my PhD is still yet to be determined um, because there's still several years left in theory. Um, and, but I was acquainted with the lab that I worked in. Like I knew how to, to do assays. I knew how to run certain experiments. Um, so I had this whole opportunity of what the rest of my PhD could look like. And then when the pandemic happened and you are a virologist at a massive virology department at the epicenter of the pandemic mm-hmm. with um, a PI who is getting very involved in SARS-CoV-2 research immediately, and there's a BSL-3 just right down the hall from you, um, <laughs> It really feel it, it felt really, uh, really surreal. Yeah. Um, it, it still kind of does, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think it felt pretty surreal for just about everybody in the entire world. But yeah. I can imagine <laughs> being kind of right in the thick of that sort of base level science where everything is just kind of definitely taking off. I mean, we knew so little in the beginning that did it kind of feel like people were the whole world was like looking to you and and your peers for some, some, some information? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was, uh, I think that that's part of what 
drove me to be able to to get so much done, especially in the first year of everything happening, Mm -hmm. that just the thought that something that I could do, not that any of us think that we're going to somehow by ourselves understand SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, but like to be one tiny, tiny piece of the puzzle of contributing to our understanding of the virus or the disease um, was definitely uh, a motivating factor that got me through a lot of long days. Yeah. So how long did it take for your lab to shift to mainly COVID work? It was actually pretty immediate. Um, so the first uh, two weeks of March were like relatively normal. The second week of March is when everything started to like shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually was um, one of the, I got COVID like at the, that week. Oh no. Um, yeah. So I basically, um, I only knew this. I didn't have like severe COVID or anything uh-huh. like that. It was very mild case, but basically I had a cough for like a day. Um, and then I had a headache for uh, several days after that. And mm-hmm. we realized that it probably had to be COVID. And then later on, I was tested zero positive for, for SARS-CoV-2. So basically, I self-isolated for um, for a week at the very beginning of the pandemic. But wow. about, yeah, <laughs> um, but that, that week was when my lab entirely transitioned to SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> so I came back and it was just like full, full force. Um, so essentially like two weeks before the lockdown happened, um, a postdoc in our lab and a different graduate student, um, started getting trained in the BSL three facility, um, Mm -hmm. because no one in our lab had done BSL three work before, even though it was just down the hall, um, because primarily, um, the art, that facility at Mount Sinai was used for West Nile and hantavirus work. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they were starting to get trained, but then by the time I got back, everyone was working just around the clock, um, analyzing samples and everyone was doing everything in conjunction together um, for several weeks while we were um, really focusing on the the first manuscript that came out of the Tanuver lab um, in uh, April of last year. Um, and we were all just like working together um, to, to get it done. So it, it was very immediate. Um, but the, the transition was a little bit starker for me because I left lab and then came back a week later and the transition <laughs> had just entirely happened. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So if, if anyone listening hasn't heard the term, BSL-3 labs are those that use um, or that are using or researching dangerous viruses. The only higher level is BSL-4. Uh, I'm not sure what BSL-4 specifically does, but I, I'm assuming things like Ebola. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, um, basically just, and, probably, and, probably just Ebola. <laughs> yeah, Ebola. I think some Nipah viruses are BSL-4 as well. So some like emerging yeah. viral pathogens, if you do them in uh, animals, um, are also in, in BSL-4 as well. Yeah. So can can you tell me about some of these specific research you've done on COVID? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are a, a lot of different collaborations that I've worked on, but but mainly the work that I've done over the course of the past uh, 15 months now, I guess, um, is defining um, hamsters, um, mm-hmm. the hamster model of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, so for anybody who doesn't know, the, the reason that we have to use hamsters for um, SARS-CoV-2 um, is because mice don't naturally, the original circulating strain of SARS-CoV-2 does not naturally infect mice, um, which would of course be the go-to animal model. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, for in a lab to study any sort of disease. And so, of course, there are lots of ways to, to overcome uh, the fact that they can't become infected with SARS-CoV-2 because you can introduce exogenous um, host receptors that, that mm. will allow the mice to be infected, but it gets a little bit tricky when you really want to study um, like things like tissue tropism and the host response, and you actually want to make sure that everything is exactly endogenously expressed. Right. Um, so the smallest animal that it became apparent does get infected with SARS-CoV-2 is the, the Syrian golden hamster. So essentially, uh, these guys are about like uh, five times bigger than a bulb sea mouse when they're about five weeks old. Mm -hmm. um, and you can put, put two in a cage and essentially uh, no hamsters had ever been used at Mount Sinai before. Um, so we just had to uh, define uh, the hamster model to SARS-CoV-2 and just figure out how to work with hamsters in general. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering, uh, I, I mean, it's like you said, Sinai hadn't had hamsters previously. Do you happen to know how they figured out that hamsters w could contract COVID? Um, and I believe they even express symptoms similar to humans, like, for example, respiratory uh, infections, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of early um, work done um, by um, Yoshi Kaoyoko's laboratory in Japan um, that, that did a lot of defining of the animal model. Um, they had a paper that was published pretty early on, I think in June in PNAS, looking at hamsters. Um, but besides that, we knew that because um, hamsters could be infected with SARS-CoV-1, um, um, like the original SARS-CoV strain. So people knew to turn to, to hamsters um, when this happened. Yeah. What were some of the other research tools that you've used uh, besides hamsters? Um, yeah, really, I think the most exciting thing about this past year, um, in scientifically for me, is that there's just this massive convergence of different research disciplines, mm -hmm. um, and it allowed the possibility for a lot of interdisciplinary work. So because everyone um, switched their focus, even people who, who didn't study microbiology or at all, um, wanted to, to pool resources together to, to see how we could study the virus using uh, how they study science. So there was a room for a lot of collaboration with people who use things like um, iPSC-derived organoid models. So, so looking um, in vitro at, at cells that they're able to induce to actually resemble different um, uh, parts of organs like alveolar organoids, cardiomyocytes, mm -hmm. neurons, intestinal organoids, um, with several different research groups. Um, the work that I did surrounding that was with um, the Brennan's laboratory um, at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. So there's a lot of room for interdisciplinary collaboration as well. There was even room for um, collaboration with computational labs. Um, uh, Professor Avi Mayan, who's also at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, did an in silico drug screen um, oh, wow. using sequencing data. And then I was able to, to lead the collaboration from our side and, and test those drugs um, using that they were able to predict using their own computational um, prediction background, um, as well as different sorts of collaborations with people that study things um, like anosmia, um, for example. Um, 
with collaborators from the, the New York Genome Center. So really, I think that the most interesting things um, in terms of tools is just the fact that, that I think we learned a lot about how tools from different disciplines um, can be used um, together mm-hmm. to, to, to really uh, delineate some impactful things. This is a little bit off topic, but I kind of feel like maybe the only or you know one of the only silver linings to COVID was us all discovering how relatively easy it is with technology to collaborate with people who are at a distance from you. I mean, that kind of mm-hmm. became the norm. Do you feel mm-hmm. like you, you like it seems it se- it sounds like you've discovered that collaboration has kind of ramped up during COVID? Yeah, it, it definitely it definitely has for us. Um, I, I can't speak for for everyone because everybody has <laughs> sure. uh, different yeah. experience. And I know, like, I'm also talking about this as somebody who is a a virologist. Mm-hmm. Um, but it yeah, it definitely has, and I think that that has you know. It, going back to the aspect of my trajectory and training has given me a lot of opportunities to, to see how different people from different fields think about different questions um, and given me a chance to be able to like explain um, from a virologist perspective how I would plan this experiment or why we need to look at this, um, which I think has been a really valuable um, uh, lesson and, and learning exercise as well that that we can do in in real life. And I think that also in terms of uh, the science that, that SARS-CoV-2 research has brought about, I think a lot of it, a lot of the things we're learning about um, have do have a lot to do with probably many uh, viruses. Mm-hmm. But the fact that um, we can study these things on such a large scale um, with so many people looking at them mm-hmm. is just allowing us to uncover things about um, viruses and the immune response um, that really are impossible to, wouldn't be possible to study without so many people working on them at the same time and also having, um, like human data, Mm -hmm. um, in vivo data and in vitro data to, to learn these things all at the same time with all of this funding, um, and people working together to solve a problem. Yeah, absolutely. So, but speaking of your trajectory, has this focus on COVID redirected your original career goals or do you feel like you're still kind of on the same track? Yeah, I'm still on the same track, I think. I think that um, I went into my PhD not knowing necessarily whether I wanted to continue on in academia Mm -hmm. or move to industry or or move to to something else as well. Um, But I always was open-minded to everything. I personally know that I'm going to stay on the academic track right now, mm-hmm. but I also know that for a lot of people that that it has changed um, because um, of, of a lot of things. Um, but I also think that specifically um, I'm surrounded by all of these people who are in virology. And now, of course, there are a lot of new virology jobs that are opening up in industry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think that that that. Uh, that that can be appealing to a lot of people. And I know a lot of people whose, whose intentional paths have changed um, because of the pandemic as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, could you expand, like in your opinion, what has the pandemic meant for other early career researchers like yourself in this field? Like what can you say from, from the ground in terms of what your friends are planning to do? Yeah, so 
I think that it, it's meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people, mm-hmm. um, specifically depending on you know, their situation and their ability to adjust because of things that, that don't necessarily have to do with science, but just um, the things that they have to deal with in their life, like during the course of a pandemic that allow them to like focus on um, science or not. Um, right. Like for example, um, if you were, I can't imagine if I had children and this pandemic happened and there are a lot of PhD students who do have children Mm -hmm. um, and trying to make this transition um, to do all of this research, I absolutely would not have been able to. Um, And I think as well, um, if you have family members who are frontline workers um, and you're constantly, or, and also have uh, at risk, um, comorbidities for COVID-19 the past year, and you're Mm -hmm. constantly worrying about your family. um, And of course, those worries are are even greater, specifically in communities of color. Yeah, I think that um, for a lot of reasons, I was privileged enough to be able to take advantage of this opportunity in a way that a lot of other people in different situations um, wouldn't have been able to because of, of the the toll that this pandemic has taken on how a lot of people um, live their lives. Um, So I think that it's meant a lot of like heterogeneous things for, for different people. Um, I think that, that the opportunity specifically in the field of virology, there's definitely a lot more now um, because everyone's worried about the next pandemic um, Mm -hmm. and how the next pandemic is, is going to happen. So there's a lot of virology research, which is a really exciting time. Um, but, uh, I, I think that, that each individual has definitely had their own experience. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, especially considering it's not as if COVID was the only thing happening in the world over the past year and a half, if only it had been, um, right. obviously a lot of other things have been going on globally, uh, mm-hmm. since 2019, um, yes, that's true. and before and forever, but <laughs> I, you know, if nothing else, and it brings more attention to virology and to, um, you know, how easily these sort of pandemics can happen, I feel like that's good knowledge for us to have. Um, and the more science that can be done around it, obviously, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Daisy. We really appreciate hearing perspective from a researcher who's right in the thick of things. Thank you so much for having me.